Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Mini football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, mini baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. September 28th, 1972. It's Game 8 of Hockey's Summit Series. The best of Canada against the best of the Soviet Union. After seven games, each side has three wins and a tie. In Canada, the entire country is virtually shut down. The nation's cultural identity on the line. As the Soviets pull ahead after two periods, five to three, frustration mounts. During the intermission, the goaltender Ken Dryden says to himself, in 20 minutes, I will be the most hated man in Canada. It was the ultimate test of the two hockey superpowers. Those guys were playing with passion. Everybody knew that it's a war. Now they're pointing at each other back to the net. Lee is totally incensed at this call. Two hostile economic and political systems. Capitalism versus communism. We're not going to lose. No way we're going to lose. This was for the prestige of the country. We are the world champions. I was like a man possessed. Cold War, the us-against-them attitude was exactly what this turned out to be. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. How are you, everybody? Uh, Welcome back uh, to you as well as to me. (laughs) Uh, We are indeed back. Happy 4th of July in the United States as we drop this on Monday, the 4th of July, 2022. My name is Tim Hanlon, and it, of course, is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, say it with me, will you, what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. We appreciate it. And um, what better way to celebrate Independence Day here in the United States than by going to Canada? Yes, we're going to Canada this week. Who knows? Who knows why? Um, But uh, we uh, had the opportunity uh, to go back uh, to a topic that we uh, first investigated uh, in our episode number 194 uh, with our pal Rich Bendel. Uh, the uh, 1972 Summit Series. And if you're a Canadian citizen, uh, you know that series almost as part of your birthright uh, and the craziness around it and the defining uh, sports moments, plural, uh, 
that are still to this day seared uh, in Canadian sports history. And this was a uh, a somewhat unassuming uh, series of exhibition hockey games, a preseason kind of at that, uh, preceding the uh, 1972 NHL season. And even that was a drama drama because uh, the World Hockey Association was coming onto the scene at that time, too. So uh, some of the players, arguably some of the better players or best players, uh, could not participate. And this was an exhibition series against the then Soviet Union, uh, the Red Army team, um, uh, by all accounts, um, uh, the uh, best why well, was the Red Army team? I think it was it was a collection of of Soviet all stars. But we'll get into that. Um, the uh, the situation. Who? Why am I bringing this up? Scott Morrison is our guest, and if if you're a Canadian hockey fan, you know the name Scott Morrison because you've either heard him on television or the radio or read his stuff. Uh, probably one of the most uh, uh, plugged in uh, and and long lasting hockey reporters and uh, commentators uh, on the scene. And uh, his brand new book uh, from Simon & Schuster is called 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever, with a forward by Phil Esposito, he of the uh, current Tampa Bay Lightning organization. Uh, uh, Obviously, a pretty darn good season for them this year and certainly the last two years. Uh, But I digress. Um, This is the 50th anniversary, this upcoming um, September, of this dramatic series of, of games that, like I said earlier, was largely a a sort of un uh uh you know uh eventful uh, uh you know kind of uh, I want to say hastily arranged but it was you know promotional it was uh, done as a preseason sort of tune up for the NHL uh and again this was sort of against uh two uh dominating uh countries in the sport of hockey at that time the then Soviet Union and Canada Canada mostly uh perceived to be uh, the top country on the planet when it came to the professional game. And the then Soviet Union uh, generally accorded that same status as best in the world on the amateur front, quote unquote. Um, you remember the Soviet Union, their approach to amateurism, uh, certainly less than that, shall we say, in terms of of that uh, paying uh, players and and uh, grooming them uh, to be professionally uh, uh, Qualified players, albeit uh, retaining their amateur status, uh, all part of the intrigue of this series and this uh, tectonic uh, battle, if you will, uh, and maybe the first real time on the national or international stage, I should say. And as we learned uh, in our conversation in episode 194 with Rich Bendel, uh, and as we will go even deeper this week uh, with our pal Scott Morrison, um, th- this is a series that. Um, uh, uh, is just uh, not only iconic, uh, but just is just part of the the history of the country of Canada. It's not just sports history, but history. Uh, it was uh, it was truly one of those Canadian moments where, if you were alive at the time, you remember where you were uh, during the playing of this series, during the winning of the series in Game Eight. Yes, they played eight games, um, and just how uh, important it was to Canadian pride. Um, and the drama, the ups, the downs, the sidewayses of all of it. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating. It's intriguing. It will continue to be so. And uh, a great excuse, this 50th anniversary of this series. Uh, we've got a couple of clips embedded in this uh, 
uh, in this episode and uh, a great conversation uh, with our new pal, Scott Morrison. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Canadian hockey uh, and just the the outright uh, gigantic significance uh, of this series that changed hockey forever. I don't think that's hyperbole as we talk about 1972 and the Summit Series uh, coming up in just a few moments time. Let's stick with uh, some hockey promotional goodness uh, and somebody we haven't really called out lately. Uh, and I think it's high time we do. It's vintageicehockey.com, vintageicehockey.com. And it's, uh, if you want to celebrate and remember uh, the defunct hockey teams that uh, for whatever reasons don't take the ice anymore, uh, perhaps uh, a special place in your heart or that of of your friends and family from back in the day, well, this is the place for you. T-shirts and all kinds of other uh, stuff with the logos of some of these great teams that you may just remember from the past at VintageIceHockey.com. It's Kevin Schultz and his pals in uh, Florence, Kentucky, of all places. It's the home for all of those teams from long ago, both fondly remembered and those just simply and abjectly, he says, forgotten. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. It's Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And look, you you know, you can shop the teams alphabetically from the various states and, and countries. Um, perhaps uh, some of the arenas you might remember, like the Cincinnati Gardens or the Long Island Comac Arena. Um, and we're talking about teams from both the major leagues, like the World Hockey Association, uh, but also from those minor leagues uh, that you just may have forgotten. Um, it, it's an amazing assortment and an amazing collection of all of those teams you thought were forgotten for good, and they're all there for you. Skate on over to VintageIceHockey.com, and don't forget to use the promo code early and often, as they say, and that promo code is good seats to save 10% off all of your purchases. Thank you to Kevin and all the team at VintageIceHockey.com for their support of this week's and many weeks' versions of this little show. All right, let's waste no more time. Let's get right to our fun and in-depth conversation uh, with the author of 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Here's our conversation with hockey journalist and commentator and broadcaster and all that stuff, Scott Morrison, we had just a couple of weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a bit of a sense of uh, your professional and maybe even personal background. Uh, and we'll use that sort of as the lead up as to how and why um, your uh, approach to this topic, which is to the Canadian citizen, uh, if you will, nothing new and full of lore. I'm just curious as to how you, uh, you know, what's your adjunct to the story, uh, either on a personal or professional level? Well, I'm old enough that I was, uh, was able to watch the series as uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ahead of my 14th birthday at the time. And uh, my parents were kind enough because the games in Moscow, one was on a Sunday and the others were on weekdays. And, uh, and uh, they were kind enough, even though the, the country stood still then it was, it was like 16 million out of our population was 25 million at the time were watching on TV they rolled, they rolled TVs into the gymnasiums at the schools and in the classrooms and they let kids have transistor radios and they can Google what that means, the young ones. Uh, transistor radios in their pockets with earpieces and uh, 
And, you know, there would be people standing on the streets looking through the windows of department stores, uh, electronic stores, watching the game on during the days and offices stopped. And, you know, I, I wrote a book leading up to the 20th anniversary, and the title was The Days Canada Stood Still. And Canada really did stand still during that series, especially those final games in Moscow. So I was able to watch them. And, um, you know, as a Canadian, a kid growing up playing hockey, I mean, it was just one of those moments you never forget. And for our country, for a generation and many generations, I guess, it was a where were you moment. Uh, that time where you can always remember what you were doing, where you were, who you were with, and how you felt when you when the moment happened. And uh, and then I got into, uh, you know, journalism. I, I loved it from a young age. Uh, and I got in and was sports writing when I was like 18, 19 years old and uh, went on to become a hockey writer and a sports columnist and a sports editor and did a lot of TV work and went into TV full time with, uh, you know, the uh, Sportsnet, which is uh, the all sports channel up here and Hockey Night in Canada, had two visits with them. And uh, so, you know, hockey's been a big part of my life and uh, that series has been a big part of Canada's history and a lot of Canadians' lives. Well, so for you, there, there's a couple of different sort of uh, things going on simultaneously around this time in your life, right? So certainly one is you're Canadian, okay, which is a given and and understandable. And for our American and, and international audience, we'll, we'll kind of delve into a little bit as to, to, to why that's especially important. But it's also perhaps some, some budding exposure to a sport that not only uh, just comes with the territory being a Canadian citizen, uh, whether you like it or not, but uh, maybe even a, a, a sort of a budding professional kind of uh, approach or adjunct into it. But but interestingly, and perhaps maybe more universal, uh, certainly from what we've done over the last four or five years of our various explorations in, into stuff in pro sports that, you know, either in team variety or leagues or sports or whatever that that have come and gone. The impressionable youth thing, especially if you're a young male who is inclined towards sports, which, you know, generally is pretty common and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, straightforward, uh, uh, at least historically. Um, this series, right, is happening right in the midst of, I would argue, your, you know, peak, shall we say, sports attachment years as a young, red-blooded Canadian boy, kid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that age, where you, you played for several years already. And, uh, you know, at the time, we didn't have Major League Baseball in Canada. We didn't have the Blue Jays. We didn't have, you know, basketball. We didn't have the Raptors. Um, you know, we had our Canadian Football League, which was huge at the time. But hockey was, was the thing. And that's what everybody grew up with. And, you know, winter sports country. Hockey was our thing. Hockey is our game. That was Bobby Hull's book. And, you know, the other, the great influencer of that time was that the world, as much as you want to say it was a different and what's going on in the world now with Russia and Ukraine, it makes you think that the world isn't that much different, sadly. But it was a different time in that, uh, you know, it was communism versus capitalism, democracy. And, uh, you know, the East versus West, the Cold War and, you know, sports were put on pedestals that, you know, whether it was Olympics, if, if someone won a gold medal or a series of, of this magnitude, which was the first of its kind, which made it 
so unique in its own way. Uh, but they they became political statements that if if your athlete won, it was a it was a testament and and a boasting about your way of life and your political system and uh, and all of that. And you know the world was a really divided place at that time, and and we didn't know a lot about the Soviets back then. They were a black and white image on uh, the nightly newsreels, and uh, you know they were communists and they were taking over countries and they were this great threat and they were the big bad Russian bear that we feared in many ways. And so uh, to come together with them, the, the political dynamics that were, went beyond just the, the hockey pride that was involved was something that really gripped the nation as well, because, you know, it was about winning to say you were the best on the ice, but also you were the best off the ice. All right. So you spent a lot of time in uh, in this uh, 50th year sort of anniversary recounting uh, in in this book, uh, a great forward by um, the great Phil Esposito, who I, as a kid growing up in northern New Jersey, remember mostly as a New York Ranger, but obviously yeah. had a career, just a little bit of a career before even that. Uh, and, yeah. and afterwards, too, uh, as we record this, still very much alive in the uh, with the, his activities with the lightning, uh, both, uh, you know, in management as well as broadcasting now. Um, but you spend quite a bit of time in, and, and for this, uh, earnest yet somewhat naive American sports fan, uh, pretty, uh, opening and, um, and educational as to sort of the, uh, the, the, I guess the origin story of why this series kind of was created in the first place, because, I think it's lost on a lot of people, especially those who are relatively new to this story, um, that this was essentially uh, set up as a quote unquote exhibition and it became perhaps almost in real time something far bigger than that. But but before we get into maybe that dynamic and how that sort of evolved, can you maybe for the audience give us a sense of uh, why a series like this uh, sort of came about because the sport of hockey in both its professional and amateur levels on the global stage, so to speak. I mean, there were, there were various differences and disputes and, and um, I guess uh, uh, alternate approaches, I guess, to how one would sort of prove one's uh, supremacy or competitiveness. And I think that's kind of lost on a lot of people as to sort of the somewhat complex uh, setup between the, the pro game and the, and the amateur uh, and frankly, the perceptions, I guess, of who's best uh, in both or in total, all of it, uh, leading up to this in 72. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, Tim, that, you know, I mentioned just how, you know, the politics was the undercurrent of all of this and that, you know, the international bragging rights, when you could put a gold medal around your athlete or win a series like this or a world championship. And, and the, the backdrop of that series was... A, an international chess match between, and this Americans can relate to this, of Bobby Fischer versus Boris Spassky on the international stage. And who, who would think that a chess match would make front page news across a continent and two continents? And yet it did because it was America versus the Soviets with that Cold War backdrop. And it was all about winning and how important that was to Again, as I said earlier, uh, affirming uh, your way of life and your politics. So that was another series that was going on that uh, 
you know, when you, you put that context to it, you just say, well, yeah, it was a different time then and the mindset. But, you know, the series came about because uh, for a, a lot of different reasons, um, from the Soviets' perspective, you know, they had been late coming to the hockey scene uh, back in the 40s, 50s, but, you know, they quickly were dominating it and they were winning Olympic golds all the time and world championships all the time. Although, ironically, in 72, after the series was announced, they lost to the Czechs, but they felt it was time that they needed to move on to another level to prove their supremacy, to play the best on the other side of the world. And at that time, it was, by and large, uh, the Canadians that were playing in the, the National Hockey League and to, to show that they belonged, uh, that they were the best in the world. And so they dropped the broad hint uh, that was picked up by the Canadian government. And at the time, a lot of things were happening in a bad way in our country. Uh, we had an FLQ crisis where there was a kidnapping and a murder of, of, of politicians in the in 1970, there was a bit of a divide in the country over language and whatnot. And the prime minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, whose son Justin is the prime minister right now, he had promised that uh, he wanted to deliver something positive to the country and that hockey was, as we mentioned off the top, was such a, an important part of what we were all about, that creating maybe a series like this uh, might give the country a distraction and something to feel good about because as you mentioned, that the feeling was that our very best would uh, easily walk over their best. They were amateurs. We were professionals, although they were professionals just without the title. And uh, so it was the first time that our very, first, very best players were going to get a chance to play against them. And there was a great frustration in Canada at the time because we were only allowed to send our best amateurs and they were getting beaten year after year after year after year. And there was a, you know, a thought there was an inward look to see how we could improve at that level. And then when this idea of the series all came together, it just seemed like the perfect fit. And as I say, given the mindset of our country at the time, uh, it felt like a big international victory like that, uh, you know, it became bigger than what was envisioned, but, uh, a, a victory in any way was going to be good for the psyche of our country. It needed a feel good moment. So, so I guess put another way, right. The, the, um, then Soviets, uh, were probably feeling quite comfortable in their competitiveness, given their dominance on the amateur world stage. Um, and we put the term amateur in quotes, right? Because right. clearly they're, the, the system in which they were being developed was uh, very much a uh, akin to a professional organization in terms of full-time job and all that kind of stuff. Yet on the uh, on the pro level, right, I think, you know, coming out of the 1960s, you had uh, the NHL finally expanding beyond its uh, six teams at that point. I mean, it's arguably late to understand the idea of expansion and, and, and uh, you know, borders across both of Canada and the United States to kind of really explode as a sport. But in terms of the Canadian psyche, right, they, if you call it a true professional game, right, they're, they're playing and dominating, frankly, the rosters of the National Hockey League, which nobody, I think, in on, on the, the global hockey scene would deny was, and arguably still is, the best uh, top-tier professional league in the world, right? So, it's almost a, 
I guess, depending on who you're asking of these two nations, were, quote unquote, the best. And, and in their minds, each of their minds, they're both right, I guess. Right. They were on their own stages. They were the best. No question. And I think the feeling was and, and remember, again, because it's 1972 and you didn't have the World Wide Web, as we call it, and, uh, and, and you didn't have a lot of international broadcasts. You know, both sides didn't know a lot about each other. The, the Soviets certainly knew how good the NHL was and they were exposed to it. We only saw the Soviets when, you know, maybe in Olympics you might get a game here or there, a gold medal game would be on or a game against Canada, but it's not like it is now where all the games were on TV. And so there was a bit of a mystery about them, but certainly from our side of it, it was, you know, we had this feeling that no, nobody was better than our best pros. And we knew our, our amateurs competed hard against them and often got close. So if they could get close, then the Soviets would never get close to our, our very best players. And, and that was a real big, uh, you know, sort of storyline, developing storyline of, of the whole uh, the whole tournament was that everybody thought that our guys were going to just walk over them. And the players were told this. Uh, they heard it from the fans. They heard it from the media. And that was the mindset. They went into training camp, which was a bit of a lark. And they didn't expect that these guys were going to be as good as they were. And even when they sent scouts over to watch them pre-tournament, um, you know, the Soviets, uh, you know, masters of deception, um, really kind of painted themselves to be just a b bunch of very untalented amateurs uh, in the games and the practices that they saw. And so the scouts were, I don't want to say dupe, but there was nothing there to see. And so the scouting reports didn't help to get the players in the right mindset to be ready for the tournament. So when they finally got to Montreal on September 2nd for that first game, uh, the Canadians thought, yeah, it was going to be an easy exhibition. And back then, too, you have to remember that, you know, the NHL players, a lot of them ran ho hockey schools in the summer. They worked on the family farms, those who came from rural areas. Uh, some had jobs, promotional jobs with you know, quite often breweries and that type of thing. So they worked in their summer and there wasn't summer ice to practice and there there weren't summer workout routines. And that's what training camp was for in the fall was you played your, your yourself into shape. And so when they finally got to that first game, it was uh, one team was prepared for nine or 10 months and one team was not prepared and, uh, and it showed. And, uh, and then all of a sudden what was supposed to be that that lark, that easy exhibition series became very dramatic in a big time hurry. How did the series come about and and why was it, uh, you know, created as a what would then become a preseason event leading into the NHL season? Like why why set up there, say, versus, I don't know, midseason somehow as a as a one or two week break, for example? Yeah. Well, as, as I say, well, one of the things is a lot of the NHL owners, especially the owners of the American teams, didn't like the series from the beginning and had to be talked into it and and assured that there would be some money uh, shared amongst the teams. And uh, uh, so it was Clarence Campbell, who was the president of the NHL at the time, Alan Eagleson, who was the head of the Players Association. They had to uh, assure the owners that uh, – 
everything would be taken care of. There'd be money put into the players' pension fund that they wouldn't have to deal with and that sort of thing. So uh, they weren't in favor of, uh, of the series in the beginning. And, uh, and to have that interrupt their season was just not something that would ever be contemplated at that time the way we do it now or have done now with the Olympics and that type of thing. So, but as I say, off the beginning, you know, the Soviets wanted the bigger challenge, the bigger stage and Canada had its issues with the amateurs and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, sort of the, the climate of the country at the time needing a feel good moment. And, and Eagleson, so the, the prime minister was on side and Alan Eagleson, uh, had envisioned in 1966, he was sitting with Bobby Orr and Carl Brewer in his backyard, listening on ra- having a barbecue and listening to the World Cup of Soccer on the radio, and saying, "Why can't we do that with hockey, but do it with the best players, not just the amateurs?" And so, there was lots of different seeds that were planted that uh, all came together in uh, the spring of 1972. Um, we'll get to Eagleson in a second because he's his own. Enigma. Um, you mentioned the pension fund and all that, and that's obviously a, a root of it. But um, so, but also explain to me too the role of the then fledgling World Hockey Association in all of this too, because uh, there is um, a real issue with truly the getting the best, if you will, professional players uh, of Canadian. Um, uh, uh, citizenship because this new brash Dennis Murphy led Gary Davidson hyped league was siphoning a number of quality players uh, across on both sides of the uh, the border by the way uh, and for some reason uh, the WHA players whether it's politically driven or not we're not allowed to be part of this for some reason, but even though some of them were the best players in in the country by by all standards. Yeah. So the WHA was was born that year, and we're going to kick off their season in the fall of of seventy two, uh, up against or just after, I suppose the the Summit Series was over, and and part of getting the NHL owners on side and with having Eagleson involved. And, uh, and you know, the, the push from Trudeau and Hockey Canada, which was born at that time, was that the NHL owners were assured that uh, no WHA players would be allowed to play in the series. That if you weren't under contract to an NHL team on the eve of training camp in the middle of August, then you weren't eligible. And, of course, that and several of the players that ultimately did jump to the WHA, including Bobby Hall and J.C. Trombley and Jerry Cheevers uh, were part of the original roster that had been announced by Harry Sinden, and then he had to remove those names because of that agreement being made uh, unbeknownst to him at the time. And so, uh, yeah, because Bobby Hall signed with uh, Winnipeg and you know, Cheevers and Sanderson and, uh, and Trombley all signed with WHA teams, they, were, they weren't made eligible. And and Phil Esposito, uh, who, as you mentioned, wrote the forward to the book, made a, a bit of a stink at the time saying, well, don't call us Team Canada, to call us Team NHL. But that wasn't what the ultimate goal of the whole thing was going to be. It was supposed to be Canada versus the Soviets. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the politics and the business of sports came into creating and uh, 
deleting that roster. And of course, the other player that was missing at the time, uh, not because of the WHA, but because of uh, you know his infamous and famous knee injury, was Bobby Orr, who had uh, led the Bruins to the Stanley Cup that spring, most valuable player, but had to go under had to undergo a knee surgery. And uh, as much as he kept trying to get back to be a part of it, uh, the knee just wouldn't cooperate. Well, you know, to the outside observer and the one looking back 50 years, uh, as I am, uh, it seems like there's almost a, a battle of hubris here, right? Um, the NHL, I, maybe it's not hubris in the NHL's case because I, I guess they could be forgiven for, uh, I don't know about worrying, but certainly having a, a hefty amount of disdain for this uh, challenger to the um, you know, the almighty NHL, which had finally, uh, you know, uh, augmented and, and, and granted new franchises and stuff and was growing. Uh, I guess it was a persona non grata thing, right? If you cross us, you know, you can't be part of this mix, even though it would seem it would have been to the betterment of the, you know, Canada versus Soviet Union dynamic, um, you know, for yeah. a competitive perspective, right? But I guess it would have been, it would have been better for the Canada Soviet, absolutely. But because of, again, the business of, and the politics of sport, uh, that, and again, a lot of those NHL owners, um, they weren't worried about the outcome of the series. And most of them thought that it was going to be a lark for Canada anyway. So we weren't, we didn't, they, their attitude was we don't want these guys who are jumping to WHA who are throwing around big amounts of money, which really annoyed the NHL owners. Um, we don't want, to promote those players and have people say, well, there's so-and-so from this WHA team or that WHA team. So again, underestimating what the series ultimately became. And then for a bunch of those owners, not really caring about it, about Canada playing the Soviets and more worried about their own businesses and the cost of doing business about to go up dramatically because of the money the WHA was throwing around that's what was driving a lot of those decisions and, and the agreements that were ultimately made. Yeah, and the uncertainty too, right, about what was going on and 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 the the the, the talent wars that uh, would sort of evolve and and all that stuff. But all right, but let me, I let let's go back to this other issue though. Um, you know, I this is set up as an exhibition, a, a preseason at that, at least in the minds of the Canadians and the NHL, right? So it's almost almost. Uh, uh, curious well it's very curious to me as to it almost feels to me like this was not even looked upon as a frankly as a big deal i mean promotionally uh pretty interesting and obviously there's some subtext or or backdrop that you can sort of throw in there for you know for promotional reasons to sell tickets but you know this series obviously once it got going and certainly by the time it was over was a whole lot more intense and significant and wrought with uh, all kinds of other dimensions that were, I, I'm guessing, weren't even envisioned in the lead up to this, shall we say, interesting, but not certainly, you know, overwhelming exhibition series. Yeah, I, I think for many, again, that thought was that this was going to be, as, as Ken Dryden put it in the book, uh, he said it was going to be a great series. It was going to be a showing of greatness in the minds of many of just how great these Canadian NHL players were and how they would dominate the Soviets and show the world that you know we were the best and the best by 
you know, a country mile. And uh, instead it evolved into being a great series because of all the drama and how it unfolded and because the Soviets were that close and that good. And, uh, and you know, there were, fe- there were some who cautioned before the series that those who had gone, who had played or coached against the Soviets in international competition who were coached in Europe, Billy Harris, or Brian Conacher, they had, they had cautioned about, don't underestimate these guys because they're not coming here to be embarrassed. They'll, they'll be in tip-top shape. They'll have prepared for months and months and months, which they did, and they're coming here to prove something. But, you know, the other noise was deafening, and uh, not a lot of people were listening. And so that expectation was that this was going to be, as Ken said, that showing of greatness of how just great the Canadians were and how dominant they would be. Ultimately, they did show how great they are, but in a much different way because of how the series unfolded. And the series became wildly different um, after that opening night in Montreal when the you know, Canadians went up 2 nothing within the first six minutes. And everybody thought this is going to be what we had been told it was going to be. And then all of a sudden, the players are sitting on the bench saying, uh-oh, these guys are good. And they're in great shape. We got a handful here. We're in trouble. And the Soviets win the game 7-3. to three, And all of a sudden, uh, that laugher, the exhibition tour, became a series. And as it evolved, uh, because of pride and because of, as I mentioned, that backdrop of you know, the politics of the day and the pride of succeeding on that international level, it became much more than just an exhibition series. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you look at seemingly everybody in the hockey world in in, in North America, sports writers and and, and folks in, in the league and, and just, you know, people who, who understand the sport and were part of it, right? It's uh, it was It wasn't a matter of, will Canada win this exhibition series? But, you know, frankly, by how much, right? I mean, eight game sweep and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, but I, I guess the preparation is, is sort of my next question. I mean, this obviously, as you hinted at before is a preseason situation. Um, and a lot of these players are essentially starting, I'm guessing, uh, what was preparation for their NHL season. Now, a few weeks earlier than they normally would have because of this new commitment and series. And I'm, I'm guessing some of them not only didn't sort of take it all that seriously and, and maybe thought about it mentally as sort of part of a, a, a training kind of exercise, having, if you will, you know, uh, fun and, and, and uh, attention grabbing exhibition games as part of their training. But I'm guessing too, from a, um, uh, a fitness perspective, obviously, we're not necessarily ready to go, even with a couple of weeks training uh, to to even be at any kind of peak performance level to <laughs> to defend the country, so to speak, against the uh, uh, the the bitter enemy. Yeah, well, and and they didn't think they were defending the country. They thought this was it was a the battle had been decided once the paper, the ink was dry on the paper that they were the winners, and then that's what they kept being told. And yeah, the training camp, Brad Park tells the great story in the book. Uh, he's from Toronto and that's where training camp was. And uh, his wife was uh, close to giving birth uh, during that training camp. So he stayed 
at home. And he said, I go to the, the rink in the morning to go for practice or scrimmage. And he said, I'd look around the room and I'd look at the guys and they say, Oh, the boys had fun last night. And yeah, they had a lot of, they had a lot of fun and they, they didn't take it overly serious, seriously, because, you know, and Phil talks about it in the forward that, yeah, we just weren't told that it was going to be anything close to this. It was going to be like an all-star game and it was going to be easy. And, and, uh, just a lot of fun on a lark and we'd travel and see the world and they'd see this, our country. And, uh, but then all of a sudden, as I say, when that first game ended up the way it did, it became very dramatic and very different in a, in a big time hurry. And then again, the player's mindset back then was even with the training camp for, for that series, some took it really seriously, like a Paul Henderson and an Ellis and a, a Bobby Clark because they really wanted to be a part of it and they were more on the fringe. But a lot of the guys were pretty much a lock, a lark, a lock rather, um, you know, kind of cruised through it with that mindset and still knew that when the series was over, they'd go back and play exhibition and uh, training camp with their NHL teams and, and actually be ahead of some of the players because of this, of playing the eight games. And, and be ready to go. So it was just, a, as they say, a whole different mindset at the time. One uh, seemingly minor thing, but it was actually had some some importance as the thing played out, um, were the, uh, the rules that were agreed to. Um, I, I think if I could sort of simplify it, you had sort of the international rules, which I'm guessing the Soviet team was most used to in the uh, sort of any of the amateur play, like in the Olympics and world championships and the like. And then there's the, I guess, the professional rules, which I guess are largely dominated by or were envisioned by the Canadians as being sort of the NHL rule book. Um, any sort of background or, or intrigue around that as to, and maybe perhaps as to why it, ultimately the international rules were agreed to as being the, um, the, the manner of play. Yeah, I, I don't think it was as much the rules per se as then there were some nuances like changing ends after 10 minutes in the third period because they used to play outdoors internationally and it would be the wind advantage so you would change ends of the rink so that stuff was kept but it was by and large allowing international officials to uh, work the games and uh, again I think because of the mindset of how it was going to be an easy time for the Canadians, that it was a concession that was given to the Soviets and the International Ice Hockey Federation that was kind of behind it as well, that, okay, you can use your quote-unquote amateur international officials. And uh, as it turned out, uh, and what people kind of, again, because of not thinking it was going to be that dramatic of a series uh, and that intense, that I think people overlook just how, uh, thinking back, how a lot of Olympics and, and world championships were mismanaged by a lot of these officials. There was politics involved because some of the officials were from communist countries, and the feeling was that they were, their judgment was impaired because of that um, and who was playing. And uh, at the end of the day, so they had American officials. Um, doing the games in Canada, and then they had the European officials doing the games in Moscow, uh, but none of them were really equipped to uh, officiate at that level. 
uh, with the talent that was on the ice and with the intensity that was involved in the series. So it became a real big factor that, you know, as the as that series got more and more intense, it got dirtier at times in terms of the physicality, and the the, the officials just they couldn't keep up with the play, and they didn't have. Um, just kind of that savvy to deal with uh, that level of intensity. Well, we can get really granular about each of the eight games, but that's why Scott has the book out. So friends, please, by all means, buy a copy and buy a copy, a few copies for your friends. And obviously we'll be promoting it uh, before and after this uh, conversation, Scott. So no worries there. But um, I do want to kind of circle on or circle around some of the what I think are key pivot points in in this series, and and I think you have to start obviously with with game one, and you you kind of hinted at it, but September second seventy two, uh, in a somewhat warmer than normal or usual Montreal Forum, um, I guess the coronation is sort of set uh, for the Canadians, right? Uh, probably the most hallowed hall, although Toronto fans might disagree uh, of an, of of Canadian NHL hockey, um, and. It, it you mentioned some of the um, uh, I guess sandbagging, if you will, of of the Soviet team that is not showing their sort of their full colors. But um, I don't know if that was the case, and that was how the early part of the game played out. But going up two nothing and relatively quickly, the Canadian team uh, probably gave them a lot of comfort that uh, all was going to go according to plan, and then some. Um, but but that's not how the game ultimately panned out, and. Uh, is it fair to say that this game really set the tone all of a sudden, perhaps, as to what really was going to go go on? No, absolutely. And it was shocking. And it was shocking, I think, in some ways to the Soviets. And it was you know, incredibly shocking to an entire nation, all of Canada and, and certainly the players. And, you know, the Canadians, they were anxious to get going because they were tired of the training camp. And they just wanted to get playing and, and get this thing going. And the Soviets admitted to, you know, the, who we talked to that, you know, they, they had nerves, understandably, going into that game. And, uh, you know, the building was electric. As Ken Dryden said, there were, there's different nights when you were in the Montreal Forum. There was a Wednesday night in the regular season. Then there was a Saturday night in the playoffs. And he said this was somehow bigger than a Saturday night in the playoffs against Boston. And and just the, the anticipation and... Uh, and all of that, that this was finally happening, that our best were going to play, you know, their best, but they're amateurs and we were going to show the world and 30 seconds in, it's one nothing and six minutes in, it's two nothing. But as I mentioned earlier, the players knew that the score was deceiving, that these guys were good. And if they lost the nerves and they settled in, that this was going to be a series because they were in such great condition. They had such great skill. They didn't come as advertised. And, you know, the players were sitting on the bench just saying, we're winded and we're spent. And these guys are just coming at us in waves. So they knew very quickly in that game. The fans may not have. Well, certainly when it was 2 nothing, they thought, yeah, this is what we expected and hoped and wanted. Uh, but the players knew differently. And then it ultimately ended up that uh, – you know, the Soviets won seven to three. Canada battled hard, uh, but they just didn't have, you know, they weren't in the condition to deal with them, probably mentally as much as physically, and certainly physically, uh, to deal with the, the Soviets. And uh, yeah, seven three, and uh, the entire nation is in shock. 
Why, why do you think it went so spectacularly wrong? And am I reading too much into to why the building was so warm that evening? I mean, it was, I guess it's probably earlier than normal for the NHL season to begin in Montreal. But I, I think also the forum at that time, or maybe ever, and it's old and it's a, didn't have air conditioning either, right? So yeah. I, I've read, I, I think I read also in your book that, that there were, the temperature inside the building was easily in the in the ninety degree, maybe even more Fahrenheit region. That's yeah, I mean, unnerving for. It, it, that just seems like that would have a draining effect on a lot of players. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. Um, and again, and again, when you're not in your peak condition, and then it's, you know, the temperature is, you know, that great. And no, they didn't have the air conditioning. They have. They didn't chill the buildings or have the ability to chill the buildings. They did now and. You know, Brad Park talked in the book. He said the day before the game, he said, we're sitting out on a patio having a sandwich and a beer. And he says, it's like 80, 90 degrees. This is great. And then, again, nobody factored that into how things might unfold in that first game. And one side was in tremendous shape and the other side wasn't. And it took a toll on him. And for that game, the Canadians only dressed five defensemen. And that group was totally spent by the end of the game because of the wave upon wave of, of the Soviets. So, yeah, the, the weather, you know, again, it's September 2nd, so you never know what you're going to get. But uh, there's always the possibility it's going to be red hot, and, and it was. And they never played games at that time, so because training camp was always, always arrived much later. So uh, that was another factor in how everything unfolded. Uh, tell me the uh, the immediate aftermath. I mean, the, the the beauty, I guess, of this series was there was not a whole lot of time between these games to kind of uh, stew and fester and 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 you know, I guess, contemplate too much about what went, went wrong and perhaps tackle it and try to try to uh, change uh, game plan and stuff. Uh, the next game was uh, two days later in, in Toronto. Um, but what was the immediate aftermath? I'm sure the press was just beside themselves. Yeah, the media coverage was was maybe cruel is the right word. It was probably accurate, but it was cruel. And a lot of the media people who had uh, suggested this was going to be a walkover were maybe feeling a bit humiliated themselves. And the country was very shocked and angry. Uh, the media coverage was similar. I mean, even the players talked about how after that game they saw their family and they were – like their family was abusing them, saying, "Yeah, like you guys are embarrassment. What's going on here? Like, how can you do this?" And so uh, they flew out to Toronto, and uh, on the plane on that ride, Harry Sinden, the coach, and John Ferguson, the assistant coach, had long conversations and deep into the night about what they had to do to try. And they realized just how the conditioning was a huge factor, and that the Soviets were much better. And Harry had played internationally. Uh, so he had a, a sense going into it, but nobody knew. And Ken Dryden says this in the book too. He says even because he'd played against them internationally uh, a few years earlier w with the Canadian national team, and he said, you know, but he says I, I I couldn't really measure. I knew how good they were, but I couldn't in my mind measure how good they would be against the best NHLers. So I was cautious, but I wasn't afraid. I, I didn't know quite how to measure it up and, 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 and how we should feel or tell anybody else how they should feel. But they were a scared group 
when they got to Toronto, they had a close practice and Harry had made decisions at that time that uh, they, one of the things he said, because again, the mindset of going into that series in the first game, they didn't think about defending. They just thought about scoring and that they were going to run up this big number. And obviously that didn't happen and it happened in the reverse. And so for game two, all of a sudden, he said, like, we realized we have to we have to start thinking about defending, uh, that we're not going to run up big numbers every night. We'll get our numbers. They'll get theirs. But we have to defend. And so he, he brought a much tougher lineup and a much more defensive-oriented lineup into that game, uh, game two in Toronto, which, you know, a lot of people said you, you can't call it must-win because you got a lot of games ahead of you. But the fall behind 2 nothing. And all of a sudden, with the drama and the pressures that built after one game, if it wasn't must-win, the series certainly hinged on what happened in that game, or would hinge. All right, what's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show uh, fairly often. Our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, What is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them, in mini helmet form. Really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed saved from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League. How about various teams, both current and past in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. Um and by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away All of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase. All of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation.
changed in game two in terms of the play. Um, I know the Russian coach was apoplectic about the refereeing, which I guess, depending on your perspective, was either theatrics or grounded in something, perhaps. You had mentioned, I think there were American referees for that game, so the yeah. uh, the intrigue there. But, but what, I mean, scared, you said scared. I mean, I'm sure they were also stunned and acutely aware that they had up their game. The Canadians did. So, uh, what was what was different about it besides winning four to one in that game? Well, Tony Esposito was great in goal. That was one thing. Um, as they say, they they had a better attention to detail defensively, and they played a much more physical game. And that uh, and that really upset the Soviets and the American officials. And one of them, Steve Dowling, was. Uh, on the verge of becoming an NHL official, um, as he said, that they had a little bit of a different way of calling the game than the Soviets were used to internationally, where they would allow much more of the physical play uh, to go on. And so uh, that helped the Canadians. And they had a great, strong forecheck. Um, they put together some units that. Uh, got some more speed in the lineup, some units they were used to each other. And even so, that game teetered partway through and they, they you know, they're up to one, there's a shorthanded situation and Phil Esposito and Peter Mahovlich uh, conspired on, well, Peter scored the goal, one of the greatest shorthanded goals I've ever seen. And uh, Paul Anderson says the greatest that was ever happened in Maple Leaf Gardens. Around the far side, right in front of the goal, went wide of the net. Zima knocked it back to the goal. It rolls off to the side. They failed to clear it out. The point failed to get it away. Then Esposito cleared out. It's a race down with Peter Mahopoulos going in on goal. Right in! got them out of some potential trouble and uh, ultimately helped to seal the victory. But uh, yeah, they just changed their mindset a little bit differently. They changed their, their roster for it. They added that sixth defenseman, which was a big difference from the first game. And so all those things and, and you know, better goaltending at the time that, uh, that helped them as well. All right. So if you can recall then the aftermath press wise from that game, was this then now, okay, course corrected, we're on our game now, all's going to be good? Uh, or I'm just curious as to the, the, the tide, was it sort of maybe correcting back to normalcy or at least to even keel? Was there less worry and fret perhaps after the, the stun of the first game? Or, or I'm, I'm just really curious as to the extent that you know what sort of the immediate aftermath of that second game was like, you know, uh, given that it was a win versus that dramatic loss in the first one? Well, there was relief, that's for sure. 
uh, I think, amongst the team and certainly amongst the fans. And I think in the media, there was a thought that, and I'm sure with a lot of the fans as well, that, okay, these guys, they figured it out and they got surprised in the first one, but now they've got it figured out. Everything's under control. But the players knew this was still going to be really tough. So they weren't they weren't overconfident or they hadn't, you know, they felt good that they got that win. It took a bit of the heat off, but they didn't, they, they knew that this was going to be a battle. They, they weren't uh, misled by the result by any stretch and, and thinking that they had this series under control. They knew that it was, uh, it was going to be tough. Well, and Winnipeg was certainly interesting because it was the only tie uh, two days later after that on September 6th. Um, and, you know, I, in some respects, if you're making the movie, uh, you know, Rocky style, uh, shall we say, uh, you kind of have the first bat, you know, the first round, the second round, and this third round, right, uh, where the Canadians actually had had a uh, a couple of leads and gave up, if I'm not mistaken, uh, two shorthanded goals and and a, and a tie. And again, there was no overtime. I, I'm curious as to why that wasn't part of the uh, of the agreement uh, as well. But uh, it almost feels to me like if there's anything that maybe sets the scene for the rest of the series, it's this, that like this is going to be we're in for the long haul for this because um, you're seeing these two best of the best really start to duke it out now and, and ending in a tie. I mean, my goodness. Certainly been a number of close calls in this one at either end. Goalkeeping has really been tremendous. Petrov is ready for the faceoff for the Soviet. Got the draw, but was not back to Bergman. Bergman is grabbed by Petrov and hauled down. The puck is in the corner. Bergman ran at his check. Petrov, and the puck is back in the corner. The Hyloff covered, and the game is over. And it's ended in a 4-4 tie. Canada 4, the USSR 4. And that's a fair appraisal of a tremendous struggle. Two teams are tired, but put up a tremendous effort. But the final score, Canada 4 and the Soviets 4. This is game three from Winnipeg. Yeah, they were up 4-2 in the third period, and and it ends up 4-4. And, you know, the backdrop to that was Bobby Hall was sitting in the in the stands watching it with the owner of the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, there was an uproar in the country from the moment Bobby wasn't on the roster to right through the Winnipeg and, and beyond. And uh, they had some entrepreneur created buttons and there was billboards in the various cities across the country to Hall with Russia. And, uh, and so that was, uh, again, so here's another dodgy uh, effort and the players were really spent I know Phil said after that game he was just absolutely exhausted and because that's you know three games you know every second day that's a busy schedule especially when you're not in great shape and so they were spent and they were nervous and again as they say they they weren't uh, kidding themselves that this was going to be any easier than uh, than what they were seeing so that was a disappointing result, and then they go into Vancouver, and then it got really goofy. All right, well, let's talk about that, because this is the last game of the uh, Canadian side of the series. Uh, it's in Vancouver, as you mentioned, um, and 
you know, we're talking about pivot points here. Um, maybe a little bit about the game, and then, frankly, uh, even before the the uh, the teams go back to the dressing room, um, the fans kind of, uh, I think, really uh, set the tone as a send off for the Canadian team, and it ain't sort of uh, good luck, boys. No, anything but. And you know, you, you went from shock of game one to relief of game two to disappointment of game three. And then by the time it got to Vancouver, I think a lot of fans were feeling like this team had let them down, that they weren't trying, they weren't performing at the level they should be. A lot of people didn't realize or weren't accepting the notion that the Soviets were really, really good. It was that our guys weren't good enough or weren't performing well enough. And there was more anger at them than there was uh, – acknowledgement of how good the Soviets were. And it was a crowd that came in with a bad attitude in Vancouver that night. And I remember Peter Mahovlich telling me that he didn't play that game. And he was sitting in the stands and he said, you could just feel the vibe in the building. They were ready to pounce on us. And when they got off to a bad start, the booing started and it just got worse and worse. And despite the score being 5-3 when it was over, it was a lopsided game. You know, Canadians had a lot of shots, but it, it wasn't like it didn't feel like they were ever going to get back in. It was a lopsided result. And so they just had a cascade of booze from start to finish. And it was a I guess it was maybe that Vancouver crowd was speaking for the nation at that time that it was an, an angry and bitter and disappointed group. And of course, after that game, Phil Esposito had his impassioned speech on national tv in the country where he told the told the fans he said that you know we are trying uh, this series isn't what was advertised to us uh, but we're trying we're given 100 as he put it 150 percent but these other guys are good and you got to realize that but that doesn't mean we're not going to stop trying for the people across canada we tried we did our best and uh for the people that boo us geez i i'm really i all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. And if, if, if the Russians boo their, their players, if the fans, Russians boo their players like some of the Canadian fans, I'm not saying all of them, some of them booed us, then I'll come back and I'll apologize to each one of the Canadians. But I don't think they will. I'm really, really, I'm really disappointed. I am completely disappointed. I cannot believe it. Some of our guys are really, really down in the dumps. We know we're trying. What the hell? I mean, we're we're doing the best we can, and uh, they got a good team. And let's face facts. But uh, it doesn't mean that we're not giving it our 150 percent because we certainly are. I think, uh, Phil, the disappointment is a natural thing because it, the whole thing was an unexpected thing. They, you know, we all live with the National Hockey League. We have all been so proud well, over the years how great they are. It's unexpected and, because of the press said that we are so good. Not one of well, us said yeah, we were good. No, 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 no. This is the thing. This is the thing that I'm on behalf of the fans. I must say that uh, that uh, probably since everything is, is relative, we know how good you people are. The people didn't realize how good the Soviet team was, and now we found out how good they are. I think we can appreciate how good both teams are. But I'll tell you, we we love, I mean, every one of us guys, 35 guys that came out and played for Team Canada, we did it because we love our country, and not for any other reason, no other reason. They can throw the money uh, for the pension fund out the window. They can throw anything they want out the window. We came because we love Canada. 
And even though we play in the United States and we earn money in the United States, Canada is still our home, and that's the only reason we come. And I don't think it's fair that we should be booed. Well, Phil, I can, I'm sure that the people can see from the sweat just pouring off your face that you and all your players have given 100%, and we look forward to some great games from you and the rest of your gang when you get over to Moscow, and we can wish you the very best of luck. John, keep working hard. We're going to get better. I know. Boy. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much, you. Phil. And I think it wasn't so much a speech that was a turning point for the players, but it might have been a turning point for the fans uh, because it was a much different mindset of, of the country by the time they got to Moscow. All right, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the interlude of two weeks, which seems interminable given how rapidly the uh, first four games got played out. But two weeks between the end of that game and the beginning of game five, um, and not only for travel, but uh, what seems to be kind of lost in all this is that there are actually some, I don't know, uh, further preparation games for both teams with other teams uh, in the lead up to the eventual game five of this series. I think the Canadians uh, played a couple of exhibition games uh, in Sweden, if I have that right. And then the Soviets had a couple of games in a, uh, in a tournament that they had locally. Um, Maybe you can describe some of that because to me, that's, that's curious. Uh, I I wonder why given the intensity of this series and, and, and why you'd want to, I don't know. I, I, I'm, it's curious to me as to why you'd have exhibitions in between <laughs> a big exhibition series itself. Well, I think it speaks to, again, that the, the feeling going into the series of how this was going to be this great exhibition friendly. And it wasn't going to be intense because one team was going to dominate the other, but it'd be a great experience for both countries and great exposure for hockey. And so they built in a little bit of break after the first four games in Canada. And then they went to Sweden for, for eight days and played a couple games there, but those games ended up being intense and, and ugly uh, and all of that as well. But it was a time that was favorable for the Canadians because they actually came together as a team. And you have to remember like they had players from d- 10 different teams on that roster, but much different time then in terms of how the players interacted with each other from different teams. And when you played for New York, you you hated Boston. And you played for Boston, you hated Montreal. You played for Montreal, you hated Toronto. And you didn't interact. And and even though they were together through training camp and those four, first four games in Canada, they were in pockets. They weren't there t- as a team when they finished after the rink to go for dinner or go for a beer they went as their little group of players from whatever team they were from, by and large. But when they got to Sweden and understanding the magnitude of what they were staring down, that's uh, when they, they, they became a, a team off the ice as much as on the ice. And, and that was a very significant de- development. And the Soviets got home and, and a lot of their players went and played in, in one of their championship series, away, not as a national team, obviously, but... Uh, some were given time off, which was unheard of at the time, and almost spoke to them being almost overconfident on their side of it. And others played with some of their club teams in, in their in their national tournament. So, uh, again, as I say, it just spoke to what the feeling was like going into the series. And remember, too, after Game 8, there was an exhibition game for Canada in Czechoslovakia. So 
Like you would never schedule that thinking you were going to have eight dramatic games with the intensity and pressure and everything else. So that was all part of just sort of how everybody misread the tea leaves going into the uh, setting this whole thing up. Well, one interesting point with the uh, the the final four games of this series is that unlike uh, the Tour of Canada uh, arenas, uh, all four of these games were going to be played in Moscow in the same place, the Luzinski, or is that how you say it? Luzinki, no, Luzinki, Luzniki, Luzniki. Thank you, Ice Palace, uh, which is what a I don't know if it's a cracker box. I guess it was about thirteen, fourteen thousand seats and stuff. Um, and I, I do I have this right? A few thousand Canadian fans actually did make the trip. Three thousand, yeah, three thousand. And uh, interestingly, they uh, they were uh, allowed, I guess, uh, to make some noise. And and I think the uh, the fans in the stands, however they were generated, shall we say, or chosen, uh, were a little um, maybe taken aback by the fact that there was this loud, boisterous, uh, albeit minor- minority contingent. Uh, where I think, I guess, in the Soviet game, those uh, kind of outbursts and, and cheering were kind of uh, not common. No, exactly. And and those 3,000 fans, like they all bought those tickets and those uh, travel packages before the series started. So they did, they lucked out in that it became the drama that it became and the historical series that it became. I mean, they were, again, going over. And you have to remember, too, in 72, not a lot of people would travel to certainly the Soviet Union at that time, communist country, uh, Iron Curtain and all of that. So it wasn't a, a favored travel destination, destination, but, um, you know, for some that are a little more adventurous than others, it would be, uh, intriguing. And, uh, again, going over and watching the hockey, a lot of people thought it'd be a great lark, but they walked into something that was spectacular. And yeah, the Soviet, certainly in the first games, the, the Soviet audience was very, uh, a very quiet group. A lot of them were politicians, part of the Politburo, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, Brezhnev, who was running the country, and uh, his lieutenants were sitting in private boxes watching it. And, uh, you know, the most animated they would typically get, and I'm, I think it still happens today, is that when they see something on the ice they don't like, whether it's a hit or a, a missed call by the official, that they whistle or we boo and cheer and uh, they kind of they're a much more reserved group so yeah the players obviously had seen from being in canada what the fans could be like canadian fans but the so uh, the soviets themselves it was uh, an eye opener for a lot of them to have these 3000 come in there and they'd be surrounded they were they were put in one section and they'd have red army soldiers around them to make sure that they didn't get too rowdy and uh, and all the rest of it but they had a, a profound influence on that series because in that fifth game uh the canadians played very well because they came out of sweden and that two week break that you mentioned feeling that they were you know a cohesive group they understood obviously the challenge that was up ahead of them and uh they come together as a group and they were in better physical condition and they they they, they got ahead in that game and they blew a big lead and there was turmoil on the team because, again, the coaching staff had realized early, but they didn't really commit to it till they got to that Sweden 
training camp, which was supposed to be, again, a vacation for them, but it wasn't that at all. It was vacation and, or uh, exhibition games and training camp. But they realized that they had to sh- they had a 35-man roster in training camp. They had to trim that down to a workable size and just say, you're the 21, 22, 23 guys that are going to appear in these final four games because we just can't appease everybody. And, you know, they were promised that everybody would play, but it's not going to happen. We can't win if that's the case. We have to be a smaller group, a team. And so they had a lot of uh, a lot of unhappy players around them, and, uh, and, and defections happened after that fifth game. But they ended up blowing that lead in the game and losing 5-4. But one important thing, and every player I talked to and coach said that what happened at the end of that game as dejected and angry as they were at themselves for allowing the lead to go. They felt good about themselves in terms of their conditioning and how they were playing. They could smarten up. But as they left the ice, unlike Vancouver, where they got booed off the ice, those 3,000 fans stood and cheered them. And every one of them says that struck them as like, okay, we're playing for the country again. This isn't just uh, we're on our own. We're playing for our country. All right. I want to get to the next three, the last three games, but uh, a quick asterisk on that, right? Um, there's a, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the rank, right? Uh, I think the team was prepared for the fact that it was going to be wider. Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm not sure the team was prepared for the notion of uh, plexiglass not being behind the goals, but instead, you want to describe what was there instead? Well, it was like a, a, it'd be like a screen like you would see in a backstop in a sandlot baseball, that type of thing, maybe with a little more spring to it, but that type of thing, like a fencing, basically. And there was no glass along the sides of the board, so it was just this fencing meshing behind the nets, and, uh, and as they say, no glass along the board. So it was a big adjustment for the players because they're used to you know, the defenseman would get back in their zone. You're used to banking the puck off the glass, around the board, chipping it out off the glass, out of the zone, and you couldn't do that anymore. So that was uh, that was a different look. And then the way the rink was set up itself, and that was almost like what they – I don't think they do it now, but they – well, they may still, but in soccer, they'd have what they called a moat that would be around the side of the stadium that would separate the field from the fans – and they, they had a moat around uh, the ice surface behind the boards. And the, the, the soldiers from the Red Army would stand around in the moat so they'd separate the fans from, uh, from the boards. So it was a, a very, again, when you didn't know a lot about the country and the people and you only knew that they were communist and they were, you know, that scary Soviet Union that you saw on the news back then. Uh, that was kind of an intimidating setup. Yeah, although uh, the at the beginning of the game, though, uh, I, there was literally something that uh, I want to say proverbially broke the ice. But um, yes, Phil certainly talks about it in his intro. Uh, maybe for the uninitiated, the uh, and I don't know how you know uh, pivotal that this moment was, but it was certainly it added some comic relief, I guess, to to maybe some of the tension. Yeah, I did. Is uh, so one of the traditions of international hockey is that uh, the two teams ex- exchange gifts. But one of the things is that the Soviets um, welcome the Canadian team, and one of the things they did is they had a, a, a loaf of bread, which is an important part of their culture in terms of, of as a welcoming gift 
to their home and but they also gave bouquet of flowers to all the players and then one of the petals fell on the ice and when they were doing the pregame introductions phil stepped on one and uh, he landed on his butt went up and down and so bill being uh, phil being phil the ultimate showman is uh, he got on one knee like a, a thespian actor and give the the great wave of the of the right arm to the crowd and as he said i looked up and saw brezhnev in his box and the guys around him were laughing and brezhnev had just had this big scowl on his face but phil felt like he had touched them but it became a funny moment and it was an interesting thing is that brad park and i, I talked about earlier about how the players from different teams didn't fraternize and how they came together in sweden is that brad park who was uh, had been an enemy of the uh, Espo and, and and the Bruins that the before they all got traded years later, but um, he reached down and helped pick him up off the ice, and it was like a moment again of showing the camaraderie that had developed. And and Brad had talked about when they were in Sweden, they had a there was a controversy about whether the vi- the wives were going to be allowed to come in and stay at the hotel, and they had a vote, and it was a unanimous vote that it had to happen, or they were going home. And he says the first time that group had ever been unanimous about anything. So it was just another symbolic moment of how they'd come together as a group. Well, I, even that, I, I'm, I'm not sure anybody at that that moment would have envisioned that now down three, well, Russians had, uh, Russians, the Soviets had a three, one and one record going into the final three games, which basically meant that the last three games, the Canadians had to win. And I don't think, I, I'm sure not a, not everybody would, have uh, uh, envisioned that that's indeed what happened. Obviously fraught with drama, um, but the the game six, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, mini series, I guess, of the, of those last three games, um, uh, that was just a wild one. Uh, especially given, I think, what is still regarded sort of uh, controversially as, I guess, you'd call it the slash. Um, maybe you could talks a little bit about sort of why that was sort of a an incident that's kind of stuck out perhaps among a whole bunch of other incidents in the series yeah so obviously they yeah they basically there is a lot of as as history looked back on it there was different ways that they could have tied or won or but they basically Canada had to run the table over those final three games to win the series there's a lot of talk about goal differential and all that as as time moved on but they had to win the win and, and, and get it done and so one of the players one of the great soviet players in that series and at that time was valerie harlamov who had a great night from opening night on and that ellis clark henderson line had been assigned to to go up against his line and ellis in particular was assigned to try to shadow him and neutralize him and uh and they did a great job, but he was a great player, so he got his points and, and goals and whatnot. And in that sixth game, uh, at one point between periods, John Ferguson, the assistant coach, one of the hardest-nosed uh, players in NHL history, been a great player in his own right, he just said to the to the room, he said, this guy's killing us. we got to do something about him. And he left it at that. And Bobby Clark, who's a hard on the sleeve guy who would win at all costs. Uh, he went out and he gave him a hack on the ankle and uh, down went Harlamov. And I don't think he, int- and, and Bobby talked about it with me in the book and 
he didn't intend to the ankle wasn't broken it might have been fractured although there's debate over that but it was certainly the ankle was hurt and he had to leave that game he missed the seventh game came back for game eight but was not the same player at that point but he did what he thought was necessary to uh, try and win because that series as I said the emotion had gone from one level to 20 levels higher and the, the players called it it was a war both sides said it became a war not to diminish what that word really means but that was the emotion at the time and you would do anything to win players said we, we stuff that we did in those games we'd never done in a regular season game or a playoff game or it, but this became bigger than than all of us and so stuff like that happened and, and in fairness to Bobby um Stuff happened on the other side, too. It was dirty both ways. And there was a scene in, in one, of the, one of the games where Ron Ellis told the story of uh, Gary Bergman got kicked in the shin by one of the Soviet players, Mihailov, and, uh, and the skate blade went right. They didn't have the same kind of guards that we have on the blades now, and the skate blade went cut right through the shin guard into his leg. And he said, I remember sitting in the room after the game and and, and – Gary took his his skate off and he held it up and turned it upside down and he said a puddle of blood poured out of it. So he said there's dirty stuff happening on both sides. And the Bobby one didn't get quite the acknowledgement at the time because I think everybody was caught up in the emotion, but it was only over time that people looked back and started to talk about it. So, again, it was uh, – I think it just speaks to what the pressures and the emotion and and all the rest of what was going on for those players, just how intense it was. Well, and I'm sure Harlamov and, and, and the Soviets were clearly on the side of it being a targeted kind of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were probably playing that to the hilt. In, in, indeed, uh, the, there's no way that you're going to have any kind of agreement as to the um, uh, accidental or intentional nature of this, right? And I'm sure that's all part of the intrigue and, frankly, now the lore of this game Yeah, uh, 50 years on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew Bobby knew what he's doing, and he admits to it, and he has no apologies for it. And some of the players, Paul Anderson was one at, at times, has come out and said that he didn't like it. Um, and Bobby says, I have no apologies. He said, we might not have won the series without it. And they did stuff to us, and uh, or to the Canadians, rather. And uh, that's uh, that's how it was unfolding at the time. It was, uh, and again, it speaks to the officiating. It speaks to just how that thing, how that series became the greatest of all time because of all the elements involved. All right. Well, uh, I, let's uh, cul-de-sac this in games seven and eight. Uh, you know, a couple of interesting things that stick out um, uh, in seven. I, I do know that there was, was this the game where there was a, uh, the goal light went on, but off and, and there was a controversy as to whether a goal had been scored. That was in game, uh, game eight. That was in game eight. I'm sorry. So game seven was uh, sort of the, the Canada won four to three when the highlight of that game or the, so Paul Henderson scored, He'd actually given Canada the, the 4-1 lead in Game 5, which they blew the lead. So he would have had the game-winning goal there had they held, 
held on. He scored the game-winning goal in Game 6. In Game 7, they won 4-3, to three and he scored what he called uh, the greatest goal in, from a skill perspective he scored in his life where he was like a one-on-three on the defense and went in and deked them all and scored, and that became the game-winning goal. And he said, the greatest goal in my life. And I said, well, it was the greatest from that perspective, but the next one became pretty great as well, but a different kind of goal. But, um, yeah, so there's all of a sudden another game-winning goal for, for the hero leading into uh, game eight. If five of five, 220 left in the game, a 3 all tie. Puck goes into the corner, LaPointe shooting it back to the net to Savard. Savard is trying to get out, lobbed it ahead. Henderson going down, got to the defense, goes right on his own So what happened actually in that game seven, now that I think of it, is when he scored that goal, the goal light was slow going on that night. And nobody thought anything of it, just thinking the goal judge was a little bit asleep at the switch. But as it turned out, that the goal light became a bigger factor when they got into game eight. And that was when they'd fallen behind 5-3 after two periods. Uh, Espo got them back to 5-4. And then Cornwallis from Espo made it 5-5, and the goal light didn't go on at that point. And that's when Alan Eagleson went charging down to the to the to the penalty box area where the scorers are, and got interrupted by the Red Army soldiers. And the Canadians emptied their bench to go over and rescue him from these from these soldiers. Peter Mahalich jumping over the boards, swinging his stick, and he says, "Not very smart at the time, swinging my sticks." And these guys have got I've got rifles and guns, and he says, I'm swinging my stick trying to get Alan uh, rescued from uh, from the penalty box, as it were. Yeah, and a real sign of just how uh, unbelievably fraught this series had become. And, and and now, with the series essentially hanging on the final Game 8, I mean, in, in many respects, you could not have scripted it any better. Before we sort of get into the, to, to the, the latter bits of that game, um, maybe a, a bit about what was going on in Canada at the time, because this game, game eight now, all of a sudden, well, all of a sudden, I mean, I, a lot of people were following it for sure, but I think that just the added drama of the fact that the Canadians had come, if you will, all the way back in this series and now had a chance to actually win it in, in the final, in the final game. I mean, what was going on in Canada? I, I, I got to think that it was just nuts in terms of hype and, um, and I'm sure the timing of the game, right, was a little different too, right, um, for for people to. But uh, I, this was akin to perhaps maybe not only a Super Bowl, but almost like a moon landing for Canada. No, no, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, in Eastern Canada, I mean, in Ontario, Toronto, that area, they were like midday, noon, one o'clock games. So, but as I say. At the time, there was like 16, 17 million out of 25 million population were watching the game. 
So virtually everybody who was old enough to watch was watching. And, and as I say, the title of the earlier book, and this one is the game that the series that changed the game forever. It did. And, but it was the days Canada stood still and the country just ground to a halt. You know, as I say, they rolled TVs into school gymnasiums and classrooms and people were offices had TVs in them. Everybody's walking around with transistor radios. Uh, a lot of people didn't go to work, didn't go to school, myself included. And the country just stopped to watch because it was that big. And it was that big because of hockey pride. And it was that big because of national pride. And again, that, that how that world felt at the time. And so there was excitement. There was nerves. The fact that they forced it to that game eight and had the big you know, sixth and seventh game comebacks that they did to get there. Um, there was a feeling that, yeah, okay, they're going to get it done. And then, of course, just to make it even more dramatic, they go down 5-3. And you talked about, Tim, the officiating earlier. And there was an incident in the first period where there's a Canadian penalty and J.P. Parise goes over like he's going to club the referee over the head, gets kicked out of the game. And it's just like, as Ken Dryden said, he said, you could write all these elements of drama into it, but there always was some one more element that seemed to pop up. And that was another one that just made it another incredible moment in an incredible series. And then to go down 5-3 after two periods on their ice. And I'm not sure a lot of us felt very confident at the time, but the team did. And uh, Harry Sinden told him between periods, he said, don't try and win it in the first five minutes. He said, because you're going to give up a goal and then we're done. Just go out, plug away. If we can get one five or ten minutes in, then we'll get another one. And if we get them on their heels, we're going hard in those final five minutes. And that's what they did. And and that, that aforementioned uh, uh, goal light lag uh, for the Canadians uh, tying the game at five. Um, did we ever get any understanding as to why the goal judge uh, did not turn the light on, even though it was signaled as a goal on the ice? And and then obviously stoking the, the ire and perhaps maybe even the passion that sort of gave the extra boost of adrenaline to the team to kind of uh, go all out and win the win the game in the final minute from Eagleson. Park is trying to come out on the left side. A long pass to Phil Esposito going in. He shoots. Oh, right in front of the net. Esposito banged that. Here's another shot by Cornwallie. His goal! Canada has tied it up. The Canadian team grabbing each other there as a loose puck went around the net. And Canada tied it finally. Five to five. Esposito makes an incredible individual effort on this goal. I can't say enough. Look at him fight for the puck. He gets it back out in front of the net after having missed it once himself. And I believe it's Ivan Cornelier who gets the goal. Phil Esposito, once he takes for it now and he keeps fighting, he gets it out. It's shot. And Cornelier puts the backhander into the goal. Now we see a fight break. Now there's a mix-up. A mix-up on the far side. The Canadian team are mixing it up with the spectators. And I believe Alan Eagleson is in on it over there as far as we can tell. And uh, the Canadian team are all over there. When that rumpus started, whatever it was, nobody knows. 
But Canada has tied that score at 12.56. And it appeared to be Cornwallier who got the goal. There's a wild scramble around the Soviet net. Apparently, uh, the police were trying to throw Eagleson out. And that's when the reserves from the Canadian team came over there to help out. Was there any understanding as to what was going on in that goal judge's... I mean, was it one too many vodkas before the game? What, what was any any knowledge of what was going on there, or was uh, it- well, the sense of it may have been that uh, a it could have been a faulty light, given that it was a rickety arena, and or he might have been afraid to put the light on, given what the climate in his country was, in a communist country, saying I'm not going to be the one to call it a goal. Although the referees said after, or one of the referees said after that. There was no doubt in our mind. I had signaled a goal. It was a goal. Um, but when you're used to the North American way of seeing that light go on, you especially with the, the tension that was involved at that point, you want to see that light go on. So I can understand how Eagleson reacted the way he did and, and the bench did as well. So uh, um, it's uh, there was a lot of hijinks that happened in – during the games in Russia and the off days in Russia. So the feeling was that that might have been just one more hijink to try and poke the bear a little bit and get them off their game and disturbed and distracted, given that it was finally tied up. And and clearly, I think, you know, uh, I, I, for an American fan of hockey or to sports in general, I, I think the only sort of analogy that maybe even comes reasonably close to uh, that final goal scored in the final minute of the final game by Paul Henderson, uh, not only in terms of the uh, the, the photo um, taken by uh, photographer Frank Lennon, which is iconic and I think is on so many uh, sports fans' uh, uh, desktops or, or, or posters or whatever, uh, it's an iconic picture, um, is the call of the game and the call of that uh, of that that final goal. Um, by the legendary Foster Hewitt. Now, it's it's so much so interesting, by the way, watching the footage of those games and and, and the Sovietness of the broadcast because it's all via satellite. Uh, there's some uh, the coloring is is certainly um, more austere than today's modern uh, 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 presentation. Uh, certainly, plenty of interruptions and and uh, connection uh, disruptions in, in the process, but. Um, and I think it's also from an American perspective, certainly not a hyped call by any means. But if you maybe the analogy maybe is kind of like the Al Michaels calling that 1980 uh, uh, win over the Soviet Union uh, at the Olympics in Lake Placid. Uh, certainly a lot of passion there. But I, I think the way it's understated the way Hewitt does it, but it's certainly you can hear um, the import of of the call and that goal. And it's no less dramatic. It's just not it's very sort of plain spoken in terms of its um delivery but it's it's still fraught with emotion and um relief or whatever else you want to throw against that uh, iconic call and the Bernoulli has it on that wing here's a shot Henderson made a wild stab port and fell here's another shot right by the door But you can't underrate the 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And that that television signal had to go from Moscow to Helsinki to London to Toronto. So there was a lot of, and of course, 50 years ago, a lot of disconnections could happen. So you had some broken pictures and all and, of and that. And as a fan back home, that had to be unnerving, right? Just, just the tense moments of that game and just yeah. goes out. But it was what you're used to, right? To see anything that came from overseas, even Olympics, when you watched Olympics at the time and that type of thing. Yeah, still you pretty exotic, right? signals. But uh, no, and Foster's call. Foster was, he was brought out of retirement. He was obviously the the first broadcaster in hockey in, in Canada, North America, I guess. And uh, he shoots, he scores was his signature call. And uh, so an older gentleman at the time, but... Uh, um, Henderson has scored for Canada were the words, the five words and, uh, and, uh, with a lot of emotion behind it. But, you know, by the time that Al, who I think is one of the greatest announcers ever, Al Michaels, um, uh, by the time he did the miracle on ice with Ken Dryden, who was the Canadian goalie for 1972, ironically. Um, yeah. Do you believe in miracles? So, uh, in its own way, sort of understated, but excited because of how he called it and the and the backdrop of the crowd and uh, and all of that. So, as I say in the book, those 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 words for Canadians of a certain generation certainly are never forgotten. Henderson has scored for Canada. All right, a couple of notes just to kind of tie up stuff here, and we can go on and on and on. And this is why the book is here. This is why it's still fifty years on, and people still love to talk about it. Um, uh, so a couple of, couple of bits and then sort of a roundup question for you, cause I want to let you get back to your life because I know you've got other things to do besides talk to me. Um, the, the, uh, the, t- talking about television, um, uh, interesting. It was shared broadcasts between the CBC and the CTV, uh, television network. Uh, why I, I'm just, uh, naive, I think to, to the television setup back in the seventies in Canada. So yeah, so we have the, the two at the time the two major networks, CTV and CBC. And CBC is the national broadcaster, uh, funded in part by the government. And uh, at the time, nobody wanted to uh, sort of take on the whole project again because of that whole undercurrent, as we've talked about, of it not going to be the great spectacle that it became. And also because the Olympics, the Munich Olympics, which sadly had the, the great tragedy with the Israeli athletes and trainers uh, with the terrorist attack and the, and the killings there that happened during while this series was going on. Um, so CBC was committed to, they were a broadcaster for that. So nobody could commit to it full time. But once it got to Moscow and then everything grew the way it did and finally to the final game that uh, both networks broadcast the game and used joint announcers each of their announcers on it to uh, uh to show the game so that's again how it grew in magnitude oh that's interesting and 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 do i have am i guessing correct that uh, the foster hewitt call which was on um it was everywhere they, they kept brian Honaker and Foster as the play-by-play crew, Sorry. but they had different. They had different hosts uh, for the broadcast on the on the separate networks. But it was it was essentially a simulcast. Aside from that, yes, interesting. And it's also interesting too, as an American uh, fans might remember, 
there's some idiosyncrasies about uh, the game's availability here. I do know, for example, in Chicago, one of the UHF stations, Channel 44, uh, picked up a couple of the games. And I think even in Boston, WSBK, which is, uh, I think, Channel 38, the yeah. known as a super yeah. station, uh, ultimately when cable came along, um, they actually uh, produced uh, uh, some of the, I think they all the Canadian games and they had their own local broadcasters calling that as well. They, they couldn't do that for the uh, Soviet versions, but um, I do know there was a lot of redistribution. I think PBS here in the U.S., the public broadcasting system uh, picked up uh, those remaining four games. And so I'm sure there are, to the hockey fans in the United States that were around at that time, uh, that that might be their memories of this of this contest, even though it was raging in Canada, uh, it was available for the uh, the hungry fan here in the United States as well, albeit uh, somewhat hard to find. Yeah, no, absolutely. In Boston, you know, because you had Esposito and well, Orr wasn't playing, but he was still part of the the group. And uh, in Chicago, Bill Wirtz, uh, he would have uh, he was a big part of behind the scenes in the NHL of the Wirtz family at the time. It wasn't Bill, but his dad, but um, yeah, so the, those, the, they started to see how big this thing was becoming. And I think Eagleson was starting to convince them or had already told them. And now they started to see that international hockey could be uh, a big selling feature in the years ahead, which it ultimately became. And, uh, they started to think that, okay, maybe we, uh, should, uh, get on board with this a little bit more. All right. Unfair last question then. Um, and this is the legacy question. Um, you know, we're still talking about this series 50 years on, uh, I think to a whole generation or two of fans, uh, either of just the Canadian, uh, citizenship variety of the sports fandom variety, and, and certainly of hockey aficionados, uh, all three of those. And then some, um, it says something that this is still, uh, as alive and robust, a memory and conversation and and reminiscences uh, of anything in in Canadian sports history, or certainly among the among the top ones. Why do you think that is, and and what do you think, uh, you know, the the lasting legacy uh, of this series was? Because it certainly didn't seem like it was going to be that impactful when it was set up <laughs> in the beginning. No, it was going to be great, but great in a different way. And it became great in a much different way, in a greater way, because of uh, the drama. It was the first of its kind. It'll never be uh, recaptured. It'll never, it, because of everything that's changed, uh, it'll never happen again. And it's a where were you moment for hockey fans and certainly Canadian hockey fans. And, and it changed the game. It uh, changed the game in terms of how we appreciated how they played, how they trained, uh, what they did off ice, on ice in practice, their style of play. And similarly, they gained appreciation of for how North Americans, I'll call it, but Canadians obviously at the time played. And then out of it, we had this great exchange of, you know, Canada Cups were born and uh Europeans became were allowed in the NHL and you know for a while it was you know from the communist countries the players had to defect and then all of a sudden when the iron curtain went down they became a big part of it and as Phil Esposito says in the book um, 
you know, we look at them as players. We don't call them a Russian or a Czech or a Swede or a Canadian or an American. We just call them a great player. And they all want the same goal to win a Stanley cup or an Olympic gold. So, so many barriers and were broken down and they may have happened over time, but that series accelerated everything. And as I say, changed the game on so many levels. And, uh, you know, from as a, the Canadian perspective, you know, provided a, a feel-good moment that the country needed. And, you know, you talked about it earlier, Tim, that, you know, it's, uh, you know, for certain points of American history, depending on the, the Ken, Kennedy assassination for a generation is, well, you remember where you were at that moment, the man on the moon. You know, for Canadians, because hockey is such a big part of our culture. You know, we had Vimy Ridge but that was long before a lot of us. And, uh, but then we have Henderson scoring the goal is a, is a seminal Canadian moment. And, uh, you know, there's other moments obviously that resonate in the wrong way, but, uh, in the positive way, that's something that, that lives on forever. And, uh, you know, hockey's such a big part of our culture, um, that to be able to, you know, to, to succeed at that level of the way it unfolded and the way the world was. And then, as I say, the changes, the profound changes that it brought uh, on and off the ice. Um, that's why we keep talking about it. And Phil said if we lost, we wouldn't be talking about it. It still would have had an impact, but we might not be celebrating it quite the same way, but we celebrate it because it was the greatest ever. My goodness, uh, this series uh, still intrigues 50 years hence. And uh, we appreciate Scott uh, reliving some of those memories with us. And uh, the book is uh, excellent. Highly recommended. It is uh, called 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. It is uh, authored by our guest this week, Scott Morrison. It is published by... Simon and Schuster. Uh, it came out in uh, May, I believe. So it's out there and available. There's a forward, a great forward, an excellent forward by the uh, legendary Phil Esposito. Uh, just reading that forward alone is worth the, uh, the price of admission uh, for this book. It really sets the tone about just how uh, damned important uh, this series is and was to uh, the Canadian populace. Uh, you can, of course, find that book wherever good books are found. But if you'd like to give us a few uh, shekels of referral love, because uh, we don't shake you down for money on this here show, at least not yet, uh, we could uh, certainly um, uh, be appreciative of you doing so from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 266, my goodness. Uh, and you will find uh, in that episode description a, a convenient link uh, to the 1972 book, uh, and uh, we appreciate uh, you uh, doing so via that method. Um, let's see. You can follow uh, Scott uh, on his uh, Twitter feed. Uh, he's at S Morrison Media. So that's the letter S as in Sam M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N Media. S Morrison Media at S Morrison Media. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well at Good Seats Still. 
Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. Again, our website is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's the locus for all things about this show. Many, uh, no, all episodes that we've ever created are available for you to search, browse, share, stream, do whatever. Um, of course, the best way uh, beyond the website to uh, ensure that you have every stinking latest episode of this show is to follow us or subscribe to us, whatever the method is, wherever you get podcasts. We're available just about wherever you can find them. So what are you waiting for? If you haven't already done that, please, by all means, do so. Uh, our uh, email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can also subscribe to our little uh, eekly, uh, gee whiz, weekly, how about that? Weekly email newsletter, sure. Uh, what it is is a little description of what the uh, next week's show is going to be, and we send that out over the weekend, uh, a little bit of a head start for uh, you uh, super fans out there, uh, and uh, just find that link on our website somewhere and uh, give us your email address and uh, you'll be uh, on the list, shall we say. Uh, our thanks, of course, to Jerry Payne, the great Dr. Jerry Payne. Thank you, sir, for your knob twiddling this week. And uh, thank you for listening thus far and this far and hopefully in the future, too. Uh, thanks uh, so much. We'll uh, see you next week and uh, stay safe, everybody. And uh, we'll see you. Bye. Bye.